Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. I'm uh, your host, Nicholas Wansbutter, and joined as uh, I always am on the show by a regular guest, uh, Father Bernard Utley, OSB. Father, thank you once again for joining us on The Spiritual Life. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, the resurrection of Christ and sanctifying grace. And I think uh, our listeners have in store for them a very interesting show and hearing some things that uh, possibly they haven't heard before. So uh, really looking forward to it, Father. But before we uh, get into that, just a bit of housekeeping uh, quickly to before we launch into it. Uh, the Spiritual Life is brought to you by Audible.com. If you're a bookworm like all of us here at the Restoration Radio Network but are too busy to devote many hours per day to uh, reading. Uh, Audible is a, has a great selection of unabridged audiobooks. Um, and uh, right now, if you go to audibletrial.com forward slash restoration radio, you can get a free 30-day no-obligation trial membership. And you'll get a free audiobook uh, that you can listen to to try out the service. I did that myself, and now I'm uh, hooked. I've been on it for a few months now, and uh, lots of uh, great book titles and very easy to use. So go to audibletrial.com forward slash restoration radio. And uh, The Spiritual Life is also underwritten by True Restoration with articles, books, and videos linked at truerestoration.org. And while a portion of the operating costs of the radio network are underwritten by True Restoration and a portion by our sponsor, uh, we really are... Uh, dependent upon uh, benefactors uh, and uh, our show and network uh, really depend on you and uh, to those that have given we do thank you uh, kindly so uh, that out of the way father uh, we've we're into the Easter season we just had uh, uh, Easter a few weeks ago and um, I know we wanted to do a broadcast on Easter Sunday but uh, very busy time for all of our clergy, and on top of it, Father, I know you were uh, quite ill with bronchitis, mm -hmm. so uh, mm -hmm. it's good to be back on the show, and um, uh, I guess we can start right into what you uh, wanted to talk to us about on the resurrection. Um, yeah, I wanted to first talk a little bit about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then explain uh, what we mean by sanctifying grace. You know, these topics, um, they would have been just perfect for, for Easter Sunday, but it didn't work out that way. So, But we're still in the Easter season, so it's it's most fitting that we talk about these subjects to, today. Um, first of all, I just want to say that there's two kinds of grace. There's sanctifying grace and actual grace. And actual grace is a passing or transient supernatural help from God, which enlightens our mind and strengthens our will to, to do good or to avoid evil. But sanctifying grace, it's also called habitual grace, because it is an abiding change of the soul, whereby we are made holy and pleasing to God, uh, which we gain by baptism, and uh, we lose only by mortal sin. And it makes us holy and pleasing to God, a child of God and heir to heaven. But we'll talk about that a little later. Throughout the... Um, episode, I, I will refer again to Father Edward Lean and uh, his thoughts on these subjects, and I will quote him from time to time, or rather heavily, actually, because he, he speaks so well on these topics. Uh, I will be using two of his books, actually, uh, primarily using several of his chapters uh, 
from the book, The Holy Ghost, which we began in uh, earlier episodes. But right now, I wanted to begin uh, with his book, In the Likeness of Christ. And that was his second book, uh, published in 1936. And this book is actually a sequel uh, to his first book, which was entitled Progress Through Mental Prayer. Both of them excellent books. And I remember when I first read Father Edward Lean's book, In the Likeness of Christ, I was uh, a novice in the monastery. And I was particularly impressed with his chapter on the resurrection of our Lord, although the whole book is simply excellent. Uh, Father Lean uh, had the gift of psychologically analyzing the typical soul's common response to a mystery of the faith or an aspect of life in general. You know, human nature doesn't change, and, and nothing is new under the sun. And it's very, it was very easy to say, you know, I felt the exact same way, or that's what I go through. You know, reading what he wrote, it's almost like he, he just was describing your own experience. And, in fact, the way the apostles reacted to the resurrection of our Lord is somewhat similar to how most of us react to Easter, or rather the mystery of the resurrection. And, you know, let's be honest, for most of us, most of the time, I think Easter is felt to be anticlimactic. You know, it, it's for most of us, the highlight of our year, liturgically, is either Christmas or Good Friday. You know, even let's just stick to Lent and Holy Week. For most of us, Good Friday is the height of our devotion. And then when Easter comes around, we slacken our devotion and we go on like usual, business as usual. But Easter didn't seem to be quite that important. It didn't feel to be quite important to us. You know, I think many of us, we experience a certain kind of joy at Easter, perhaps at the thought that our Lord's suffering is over, that he uh, gloriously returned to life, never to suffer and die again. But I think that for too many of us, uh, such spiritual joy barely brushes the surface of our soul. And in fact, our joy is probably not quite for spiritual reasons. And I think, let's be honest here, that what is uppermost in our minds is fasting is over. And I think all of us, uh, if we're honest, would say that's the relief when Easter comes. Oh, now the fasting of Lent is over. And our joy is due not to the fact of our Lord's glorious resurrection, but to the fact that Lent is over and we can again have our old glorious snacks between meals. So it's not really for purely spiritual reasons, not because we got something deep out of the resurrection. Um, But I think deep within our heart, we have the secret feeling that the crowning mystery of our Lord's life uh, should be of the greatest importance for our own spiritual life. But we haven't found it to be so. And Easter time becomes, for many of us, even for spiritual persons, not a time of spiritual progress, but rather the contrary. I think most of us would find meditation on the resurrection, you know, we feel it to be a little uh, too vague and unsatisfactory, maybe, and ordinarily not very helpful. We don't even know what to think about. And it doesn't seem to yield the fruits that meditation on the other mysteries of Christ's life seem to produce in us, in the mystery of, uh, in the mysteries of Christ's nativity and infancy, his uh, hidden life, or even his public life, but most especially his passion. One feels somehow nearer to Christ. He's more human. He's more approachable. 
There's more for our, imagi- our imagination to cling to also. But in his risen life, he seems too remote, too distant from us, and too cold, perhaps. And our, our, our minds are haunted by that, do not touch me, which our Lord addressed to Mary Magdalene. And as far as we're concerned, maybe we don't say this explicitly in our mind, but, but we probably feel this, that the resurrection means the withdrawal of Jesus from us, that our Lord is taken away from us. And surely there's not there's something not quite right with this common spiritual experience. For according to the words of our Lord on the eve of his death, union with him ought to progress because of his resurrection. He said, I tell you the truth. It is expedient to you that I go. But if our blessed Savior, after his glorious triumph over death, he, if he continued to dwell on earth, it is without doubt that his risen life is meant to have its own purpose and meaning for our own spiritual life. I don't think we should feel too badly that the mystery of Easter leaves us somewhat cold and that we often fail to draw from it appropriate spiritual fruits because that's exactly how the apostles uh, reacted. And that's, that's how Christ's first disciples reacted to his risen life. They were confused and they failed to adjust to the situation. And why this confusion? I think the reason is that they didn't really understand the whole purpose and meaning of his life before his death. They didn't understand the real purpose of life in general. And they, they thought that his life's purpose was political. The restoration of the temporal kingdom of Israel. Actually, some of them clung to this false hope, even all the way up to his glorious ascension into heaven. Even after the resurrection, they still didn't quite get it. Because right before the, the ascension, they said to him, They, therefore, who were gathered together, asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? So you see, their whole outlook on the life of Christ and of the spiritual life itself was extremely shallow. They didn't understand the meaning of the cross, the glory of the cross, the triumph of failure, quote-unquote failure. They did not understand that if they wanted to be glorified with Christ, they must share in his cross and humiliation and death. And they didn't understand what divine treasure our Lord had won for them, sanctifying grace, the interior life of union with God on this earth, and the possibility of entering heaven. That is what our Lord came to give them, not political freedom, not just freedom from sickness and even not bodily health, but spiritual health, spiritual life with God. And Father Lean talks about how at Pentecost, as we know, the apostles received a vast and comprehensive understanding of the truths of the faith. And, you know, by the light of the Holy Ghost, they were able to completely grasp the whole of Christ's revelation. And it was an utterly ecstatic vision of truth. You know, all the knowledge and understanding of uh, all the theologians, even the doctors of the church, was darkness compared with their the light that radiated their minds. They understood it completely. And thus they preach with such boldness and fire and enthusiasm that their hearers thought that they were drunk with wine. And they were drunk, but not with wine, but with wisdom and knowledge. They were intoxicated with their new understanding of the mystery of Christ. And under the impulse of the Holy Ghost, they burst forth from the upper room and they preached Catholicity. 
But what did they preach? What was the pivotal point of all their teaching? It was the resurrection of Christ. To them, it is the supreme truth of our faith, the central dogma of Catholicism. It is the compendium of the faith because it embraces within itself the whole plan of redemption. You know, by, by Christ's glorious resurrection, you know, we, the Eternal Father seals the work of redemption and declares uh, his acceptance of the loving sacrifice that his Son offered for us sinners. It's kind of his stamp of approval that I accept the sacrifice, that there is the atonement made for all the sins of men. And the resurrection also was the reward of the Father for all the sufferings and humiliations that his beloved Son endured in his passion and death. And in rising from the dead, our Lord proved, this is another thing about the resurrection, our Lord proved that he was God, that he was the author of life. He gave life back to himself. And therefore, it proved that all his teaching had been stamped with God's seal of approval. Indeed, that's why all our faith, all of Christianity is founded on the fact of our Lord's glorious resurrection. This is why St. Paul said, if Christ be not risen again, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain. Now, this aspect of the resurrection, that it proves that our Lord was God, it is true, absolutely true. The resurrection of Jesus, however, is rarely presented as anything more than that, anything more than one great apologetic argument proving his divinity. It certainly is that. But if we don't penetrate deeper within the mystery of our Lord's resurrection, past the mere apologetic aspect, it will fail to stir our souls, and it will not be for us what the Church intends it to be. It is more than merely an historical fact on which to build an argument. Yes, absolutely. Our hope is not founded on a dead man. We know that. Our Lord rose from the dead. He is alive. He is living. He not only rose from the dead, he is risen. And, but he lives in order to give us life. This is why he came on this earth. This is what he said. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And if we fail, if we fail to grow in this life that he came to give us, then we have failed as Catholics. I think, unfortunately, there's the tendency to reduce everything to apologetics, that the purpose of this was to prove this. But not everything in our faith is just about apologetics, just proving something to someone. The faith is not just doctrines to be defended. It is doctrines to be lived and are meant to affect a transformation in the soul. Another aspect of the resurrection is that his resurrection is the promise of our own bodily resurrection. You know, the separation of body and soul, which we call death, is only temporary. And if we die in the state of grace, which we will explain later, which is basically in friendship with God, then one day, the last day, at the general resurrection, we too will rise from the grave with glorified bodies. We are meant to live forever, body and soul, in heaven. And our resurrection flows from that of our Lord. We participate in his resurrection. 
But again, the meaning of the resurrection is not just left for the last day. It's not just apologetical. It's not just esca, uh, it's a difficult word. Esca, heck of the, uh, can't even say the word right now. Um, uh, eschatological. Right, eschatological. It is, it's not just for the last day, not just the end times. It's also a symbol and the source of the spiritual resurrection, the resurrection from original sin to the life of grace and baptism, and the growth of that life of God within our souls during this life. And if you notice, this is something that Father Lean pointed out that struck me in his chapter on the resurrection, that for our Lord, the cross preceded and prepared and prefaced his glorious risen life on earth. But he didn't go straight from the cross to heaven. He had a risen life for 40 days on this earth. So in our own case, it's meant the cross is meant to play a similar role, a prelude to a risen life on earth. That is a, a spiritual life lived all for God in peace and joy and unbounded trust in him. And this is the meaning of the resurrection. It is our Christ's life is like the risen life of Christ within us. We are risen from the tomb of sin and our own, uh, the old man. And we've risen to a new life of divine grace. This is really what the resurrection symbolizes for us. And it not only symbolizes, it has a power to, to give us that life. But I think unless viewed in the glorious light of the resurrection, even the cross, you cannot understand the cross. The cross is only the means. It's not the end in itself. The cross is the doorway that leads to life. But it's not the end. It's not the purpose of life. It's just merely to be crucified. It is to live. It is to rise from the grave. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And in his plan, death is not the end, but only the beginning of something better. So it's the resurrection and not the crucifixion, which is meant to be the goal of all our efforts in the spiritual life. In the spiritual life, it is from our dead selves that we must rise to newness of life. And this is why St. Paul said, if we have been grafted onto him by a likeness of his death, we shall be one with him also in the likeness of his resurrection. So if we willingly undergo a passion and crucifixion of our own by the practice of mortification and self-renouncement, we shall rise to a glorious spiritual life. And this is the purpose of self-denial and mortification and penance. It's not sacrifice for sacrifice's sake, it, it, just for pain. It's a scalpel used to cut out, out, of, out of our heart the cancer of sin and self-will and anything else that hinders our union with God. The cross lifts us up above the earth as it lifted Christ above the earth. And that's its purpose. And the cross that our Lord bids us to carry is not... Um, not just a cruel test of our endurance. It's the means that God and his loving providence sends us to heal us of that corrupt nature in us, which we dealt with in the passion in the episode on the passion. So really uh, great as the passion of Christ was and his cross in our own life. Uh, it's not meant to be the end. The crucifixion is not the, the height it's the resurrection. And notice how the Lord's Day for Catholics, for Christians, is Sunday, the day of the resurrection, and not Friday, because the resurrection is the central, central uh, mystery 
that we are aiming for. You have to, in order to get to the resurrection, you have to go through the cross, but the cross is not the end. It is the resurrection. But the resurrection of our Lord has within it a deep life-giving power because all the events of our Savior's life are much more than just lifeless facts of history presented for our consideration, just like a, uh, you know, a- any other historical person that we just contemplate and think about. Christ's life uh, must be for us not solely an external event, which we contemplate, but an inner experience which we undergo. And if we are faithful to our vocation as Christians, as Catholics, and to God's design for our sanctification, our personal life will mystically reproduce in some measure the life of Christ. And this includes the risen, uh, the risen life. Now, it's, this is why St. Paul said, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. That you participate in his resurrection by grace. And this is not mere poetry, uh, but we'll, we'll get into this again another time. But there are three ways in which we can explain this text of St. Paul, that Christ lives in me. The first way is by sanctifying grace. The second way is to uh, the divine indwelling of the Holy Trinity in the souls of the just. And the third way is the conscious interior union with God by, have, by, trying, by striving to have the same dispositions that our Lord Jesus Christ had to make uh, his virtues your own, his dispositions your own, your, his reactions to life, uh, your own reactions. Uh, St. Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So today, I, I want to mainly talk about sanctifying grace as the life of Christ within our souls, the resurrection of Christ, which we live in this world and in the next. And in the next episode, I will deal with uh, the indwelling of God in the soul that is in the state of grace. And then in other episodes, um, all the other various uh, aspects of the spiritual life, which include the dispositions which we should have in order to conform ourselves to the mind of Christ. And this last is what is usually meant by the interior life or the spiritual life. It is our conscious or effective, maybe in our will, our effective union with God, considered from the, the psychological point of view, how we react to the changing situations in our own life with a Christ-like attitude in order to grow closer and closer to God. But as regards sanctifying grace and the divine indwelling, technically that is the spiritual life of the soul considered, um, I'm not sure what word to use, uh, but considered um, ontologically or substantially in itself. Um, that is the life of God in your soul. And it is, uh, the other aspect is how to act properly. Okay. So there is, um, spiritual life can, can be considered from being and doing. Sanctifying grace is, is in reference to being. You are made holy and pleasing to God, and then you act in a holy way, uh, which are two aspects of the spiritual life. Father, I know, uh, I think for starting off the, the next part of this discussion, I think you wanted to talk about the uh, the purpose of the Incarnation. I think we've touched on it a little bit already. Right. You're talking about the, the cross and, and the uh, 
the resurrection is the right. really the culmination of that. Yeah, before I go into what sanctifying grace, and I, I wanted to first turn back to what Father Edward Lean's chapter in the Holy Ghost entitled God With Us. And then, and although I, I could have left that out uh, today, it's just that because in previous episodes I presented um, kind of the, the leading uh, thought into today, I just wanted to complete that thought. And, and um, I've talked about um, in the first episode of the show, show of this series, excuse me, uh, we dealt with um, the first mode of God's love for us which basically means that he loves us as his creatures with a truly providential care and concern. Then in the next show on the Holy Trinity, I dealt with God's love as it is in itself in the life of the Holy Trinity. And we saw that in God, the love of God is a person, the Holy Ghost himself. And now I want to turn to the second mode of God's love for us. And this is the incarnation. And and this will, it's really the, um, it deals with the very purpose of the incarnation that lays the foundation for the necessity of sanctifying grace. And I, this just helps us to understand uh, the big picture, how the incarnation fits, how, where grace comes in, and why we need those things. So, we, first of all, we know that God loves us as creatures. But obviously, his love is extended to creatures in various ways. And let me quote, Father Edward Lean, he says, it is not difficult to understand that God's love for a saint and God's love for a sinner, or even for a person who, though not actually in sin, is still far from heroic sanctity, must differ widely. The ordinary Christian is aware, perhaps too keenly aware, that he cannot expect from God the regard that is bestowed on the saint. Hence, whilst recognizing that God is not indifferent to him, he will ask himself uneasily, what is the real worth of that love on the part of God of which he is assured he is the object? Unquote. So, it's not enough for the human heart to know that, oh yeah, God loves everything. God loves everything he created. He looks out on creation and says, this is good, and he loves it because it has some reflection of himself. That's not enough for, for human beings. That's not enough to, to give us that confidence in God or any uh, desire for for union with him, a purely impersonal affection that he gives to all creation is is not enough. You don't want to be loved the same way that God loves a rock. That uh, you want to be loved with a more personal love, a, a love of a friendship with God. That's that's what the human heart craves for. And Father Lean writes, "What a happiness it would be for a man if he could have an assurance." that God extended to him not merely mercy and kindness and condescension, but mere, not merely a considerate and watchful providence, but an affection such as is given by one human being to another. But, unquote, but when we compare ourselves to God, as he is in himself, in his divine nature, we have to ask, how could God love us, at least with the love of friendship? Why, why would he want to? Why would he want to be our friend? Why would he love us with a, with a personal affection? He doesn't need us. And to imagine that it is no big deal that God would be friends with us, we're sinners, is to totally misunderstand how great and holy God is, how infinitely transcendent, transcendently holy and perfect he is above creatures. 
He is infinite holiness and perfection, and we are sinful and imperfect and inclined to sin. He is immortal, and we are mortal. We are in time. He's in eternity. His thoughts are heavenly. Ours are earthly. And even from certain passages from Scripture, seems to emphasize this fact. And the book of Proverbs says, The Lord is far from the wicked, and he will hear the prayers of the just. And again, we read in Ecclesiasticus, For the highest hateth sinners, and hath mercy on the penitent. Unquote. And when we consider that, all this, that we would rightly despair of having a close friendship with Almighty God if he didn't step in and give us some assurances. He's so far above us and other than us and transcendent and holy. To be friends with, with someone, it's necessary to have something in common, something. At least you have, at the very least, you have to have the same nature in common some community of life, some, some uh, common interest. For example, you know, we can care for our pets, but we do not, strictly speaking, love them with a love of friendship as we would another human being. You know, today we use the word love so loosely these days. Oh, I love ice cream. I love pet. I love my, 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 my brother. I love my friend. I love God. We use love so loosely, but we don't use it in the same way. We don't love a dog the same as you love your spouse or, or your friend. It's not the same. St. Thomas says, friendship is based on some fellowship in life, since nothing is so proper to friendship as to live together. Now, irrational creatures can have no fellowship in human life because this life is regulated by reason. Hence, friendship with irrational creatures is impossible except metaphorically. Unquote. And Father Lean comments on this. He says, quote, Now the cre Creator is more remote in His nature from us than we are from animals. The distance that separates us from Him is infinite. It would seem then that if the relation of loving friendship between us and irrational creatures is impossible, the impossibility should be still more radical, still more profound when there is question of the Creator and the creature. So, unquote. So the question is, how can this chasm be bridged? Well, naturally speaking, it can't. And no created intelligence would ever dreamed how this incompatibility between the all-holy infinite God and a sinful human being could be bridged. But God overcame, overcame it, and he devised a way. Our Lord is that way. He is the bridge between God and man. And St. Catherine of Siena in her dialogue, uh, dialogues, speaks of Jesus Christ over and over as the bridge, the pontiff. It's really where we get the word pontiff, uh, which means, uh, comes from the Latin bridge for bridge, as the bridge that spans the chasm lying between the creator and the creature. The second person of the Holy Trinity became man in order to become the friend of man, that he would have something in common with humanity, a human nature. He has a natural bond with us, a natural bond. I didn't say supernatural. He has a natural bond with us. He is of the race of Adam. He's born of a woman. He has a human heart with all the noble affections and emotions that a human heart should have. He has a perfect human heart. And Father Lean writes this, quote, By becoming man, the only begotten Son of God can have for his fellow men that friendship which the upright can feel for their friends even when they have erred grievously. 
On earth, friendship between two men is not necessarily severed when one of them suffers moral shipwreck. A friendship which could not survive such a catastrophe is neither deep nor true. The true friend is the one who knows us through and through, who is not blind to our shortcomings and yet loves us. Jesus, in taking flesh, made himself the friend of men. For the very reason of his taking flesh was to confer on them the greatest benefit that friendship could bestow. He became incarnate to strike off from us the shackles of sin, to bestow on our souls the divine life of grace, and to throw open to us the treasures of heaven. And nobly and perseveringly did he, and does he, fulfill the duties of true friendship towards each one of us, as long as there remains a possibility of our taking a path of grace and virtue. Jesus, as man, can be the friend of sinners. What was impossible to God is possible for God-made man. God, being infinitely perfect and holy, cannot love with the love of friendship any but those who participate in his holiness and perfection. Sinners are necessarily debarred from his friendship, though, of course, they are not excluded from his kindness and mercy. There can be nothing in common, morally speaking, between God and the sinner as such, but there is much in common between the God-man and the sinner. There is the humanity common to both. Hence, though God in his own nature cannot love but the holy and, and just, God made man can love even sinners. Jesus in his lifetime was called the friend of sinners. He did not disclaim the title. He rather gloried in it. And in his most touching parables, amply justified it. It is that our divine Lord, although himself so pure, so holy and so perfect, can have sympathy for us in our sinfulness and can have in his heart drawn to us in spite of our wretchedness. He is capable of being swayed by every human appeal, again, of course, on condition that such an appeal contains nothing wrong in itself. If saints could love their parents and others who in various ways came into their lives, irrespective of their virtue or their lack of it, and that because of the ties of blood and humanity by which they were bound to parents and friends, and if, moreover, that it is not urged against them as a fault, but rather applauded in them as a virtue, does not the same hold good with regard to the saint of saints? Unquote. So you see, our Lord, and that was Father Lean speaking, and I quote, that our Lord was the friend of sinners, and, and sometimes this gets abused, he, not because he approved of their sin, but in order to pull them out of their sins. And he ate with publicans and prostitutes, and, indeed, but not, not as a hippie would. Uh, who am I to judge? He didn't say that. But he entered into their midst as the judge. He descended to their level in order to raise them out of that moral swamp. He went into the midst to, to save them as a good shepherd. And I'm sure he called a spade a spade, and he rebuked them for their sin when the time comes, just at the most appropriate time and in the way. But he never crushed them. He never crushed them. The bruised reed thou shalt not break, and the smoking flax thou shalt not extinguish. And each sinner knew that here was a man who was perfectly holy, who, who knew no sin, and yet here was a man that did not quite yet know that he was God, but here was a man that was special, who was a man of God, who truly loved them, one in which they could depend, one in which they had no reason to, to, to run away from, but rather they were attracted to his goodness. 
And in St. Luke, we read that the publicans and sinners drew near unto him to hear him. St. Matthew said, it came to pass as he was sitting at meat in the house. Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples, unquote. So obviously our Lord had close, some closer friends than others. He loved some more than others. The apostles more than the other disciples. St. John the Beloved more than the others. And obviously his mother more than everyone combined. And yet he truly loved everyone. He truly loved all of us. And it is possible for all of us, even for the wayward and the weak, to approach our Lord with confidence. This is what we mean by God with us. He is with us. And let me quote again Father Lean. He says, quote, It is impossible to exaggerate the importance of this change wrought in the relations between man and God by the Incarnation. It is incalculable to what degree this chief work of the Holy Ghost was smooth, has smoothed the ways away the difficulties that attend the efforts of frail, sinful man to enter into relations of intimacy with his Creator. There is an encouragement for souls in the thought that the God to whom they are striving to return is human like themselves, with a human understanding and a human power of sympathy, whereas many such souls would be terrified and dismayed before the prospect of having to address themselves to a God who inhabiteth light and accessible, unquote. Now, we could go on and on about the, the mercy of our Lord and his concern for sinners. That's not the main purpose. My main point here is that the incarnation established a natural bond of friendship between humanity and himself. And this doesn't mean that all humanity is supernaturally united with Christ. That's an error that was taught by John Paul II. There is, there is a bond between us because of a common humanity, but that alone won't save you. Uh, like John Paul II more or less uh, taught in his encyclicals. But uh, unless there's a supernatural bond, unless we're united supernaturally to him by grace and divine charity, that is what we, what we need. But, but there still is importance with that natural bond. That's why he became man. He came down. He is, he is our brother. He is part of our, the human race. And he cares for each one of us. That is so important to remember, not to downplay, not to uh, take as the only truth, but uh, he came down to us, but in order to raise us up. And this leads me to Father Lean's next chapter, which is entitled, Jesus was born of the flesh that we might be born of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me quote Father Lean. Now we're getting close to uh, sanctifying grace. And I don't know if you uh, see where I'm going with this, where Father Lean is going. Um, but this quote uh, will sum it up. Uh, let me quote Father Lean again here. Consoling as it is for us that God has become our Emmanuel, that is God with us, gratify, gratifying as it is for us that we can give our hearts without misgiving to one who, though so perfect, is not aloof from us or disdainful of us, and an incomparably greater privilege still is ours. God stooped to our condition for the express purpose of raising us to his condition. He shared our poverty with a view to communicating to us his riches. He clothed himself with our lowliness in order to invest us with his grandeur. He took from us our humanity with a view to bestowing on us his divinity. 
unquote. And now we're getting to the heart of the matter, which I wanted to talk about. God stooped to our condition for the express purpose of raising us to his condition. He took from us our humanity with a view to bestowing on us his divinity. What is Father Lean talking about? This is something that we Catholics don't hear too much about. And that's unfortunate because it's such a beautiful truth of our holy Catholic faith. And if anything is Catholic tradition, it is this notion of Christ raising us to the divinity. And let me try to explain this. And the difficulty about the faith is that one subject always leads to a host of other topics that we can talk about. Um, But let me first say that, you know, we talk of our Lord as our Redeemer and Savior, and He is. But sometimes we don't always realize what that fully means. Even the apostles didn't really appreciate our Lord's whole purpose for coming on earth, why he died, why he rose from the dead. They didn't understand what he wished to effect in them. They didn't get it until after uh, Pentecost. Then they understood. But it took them a long time. And some of us, um, I think as Catholics, uh, we just don't quite get it sometimes. Some of us, uh, I mean, we, we know the catechism, but we don't see the big picture. Um, man's understanding of redemption is different from God's understanding of redemption. Uh, Redemption, as understood in ancient times, and naturally speaking, it meant, uh, in in the ancient times, it meant a legal release of a slave. You know, the slave uh, becoming a free man, and he, he he acquired new rights and privileges. But the change was legal not personal. It was outward and not inward. And in the same way, many non-Catholics, and sadly many Catholics, tend to think that their salvation is a change of things external to themselves. Like the apostles at first thought, salvation is freedom from political oppression or or physical sickness or freedom uh, from financial hardship. But redemption, and even salvation in in the Catholic sense, is almost entirely interior. Our Lord became man, not just to become the friend of sinners, but to make sinners into saints, to save and sanctifying us by by raising us to a supernatural union with God, so that between God and man, there can exist a love of true friendship. Now, our Lord is the model upon which we have to conform our life and conduct, but Ultimate spiritual affection is not just simply imitating our Lord and his virtues, but by living his divine life, by sharing his life in our souls, not merely his human life. We're talking about his divine life. You know, we can study the life of Christ, which we all should do more of. We should know his life inside and out. But his life is... Uh, not just given to us uh, as an example of, of, of here's, here's a, a perfect human being, and this is what you should copy. He is a divine. He is, he is God himself. And he leads us on uh, to something deeper than just a perfect humanity. His humanity is the way to the divinity. It is the necessary way that we have to follow always. But it's not the end, not the term. It's the means to get to the divinity. It is the instrument that he sanctifies us with. Father Lean says this, quote, 
man's perfection, even here below, is not attained in the admiration and practice of mere righteousness, even when the exemplar and practice that one sets before oneself to imitate has all the radiant beauty of the moral perfection of Jesus Christ. God did not become man in order that we might pass from human perfection, imperfection, to merely human perfection. The second person of the Holy Trinity became man to make us like to God and not simply like to a perfect man. So, unquote. So man is saved by a process of spiritual transformation in the very depths of the soul, not just psychologically, not just having a new frame of mind. He is meant to literally live a new divine life, a new life. Our Lord is our Savior, not merely because he died to make reparation for our sins, but to win for us a real supernatural union with the Holy Trinity through sanctifying grace. And this life of grace, begun at baptism with the infusion of grace, is meant to grow and increase throughout our entire life. So, in other words, the Son of God was sent into the world to make us sons of God, to make us become a son of God, and to act like one, both in being and doing. Now, to summarize this, I will quote again Father Lean, and then we'll get more deeply into what sanctifying grace is itself. Father Lean writes, Jesus can love humanly, but God himself, as God, cannot love except divinely, and cannot love with the love of friendship anything that is not divine. If we are to reciprocate this affection on the part of God, we must be able to love with a love greater than any created heart is capable of. We must be able to love with an affection which is divine in its principle. Who can free the soul from its created limitations, lift it above itself and establish terms of real intimacy between the created and the uncreated spirit? It is the third person of the Blessed Trinity that by means of sanctifying grace accomplishes this marvel. Because the charity of God is poured forth in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who has given us. We have seen that the Holy Spirit in the work of the Incarnation brought God down to man. He crowns this wonder by one more dazzling still. He raises man up to God. He sets the foot of mortal man in a world infinitely remote from the one to which he would naturally be confined by the possibilities of his own nature left to its own resources. He places man in a sphere where, we can, where he can approach to God and where God, without waiving the rights of the divinity, can draw near to him. The Holy Ghost pours a life and a vitality into the human soul, which enables it to exercise its faculties on the same object on which converge the intellect and the will of God, the object being the divinity itself the infinite truth and the infinite good. In a word, the Holy Ghost, by communicating himself to the soul in the impouring of divine charity, makes that soul deiform or like unto God. By, imparting, by the imparting of grace, of which he, subsistent grace, is the source, he divinizes the soul. He bestows on it the condition of God in a finite measure and thus permits the creature and the creator to embrace in an affection which is in its mode divine and truly bears the name of friendship. God becoming man became the friend of man. Man being made deiform by the Holy Ghost becomes a friend of God. 
the Holy Ghost having humanized God to affect a community of nature between creator and creature on the human plane now divinizes man to effect that community of nature on the divine plane. He has made it possible that God should love us with the love of friendship, not only humanly, but divinely. And this is the third mode of God's love for man. By this, God loves us, not only with the human created love of the heart of Jesus, but with the divine, uncreated love in which God is enamored, enamored of the divine loveliness itself. Unquote. Remember, uh, Nicholas, what our Lord told Nicodemus, um, unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Ghost, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. This is what our Lord was referring to. Our Lord came to give us new life, literally, to be born again in a new divine life. Now, now I want to go on to an aspect of this life, um, which we could entitle the divine adoption. Now, over and over in the New Testament, uh, it is reiterated, uh, this one great truth, that the redemptive work of Calvary, as applied to souls, has made of men and women true children of God by a supernatural adoption, but a real adoption. And scripture is not talking metaphorically or symbolically or poetically, but quite literally. We are made the sons of God. Simply, simply by being a, a man or a woman, just, just a creature, doesn't mean that we're children of God. We're creatures. The creature as such is God's servant. It's not his child. To be a child of God, strictly speaking, we need to be born again by sanctifying grace in the supernatural order. And I will just give some quotes from scripture that it's repeated over and over again about this being sons of God. St. John, in the first chapter of his gospel, writes, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, he gave them power to be made the sons of God, to them that believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And in St. John's epistle, he writes, Behold what manner of charity the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called and should be the sons of God. St. Paul, in his epistle to the Ephesians, said, God hath predestinated us unto the adoption of children through Jesus Christ. To the Galatians, he writes, Because ye are sons, God hath sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And St. Paul also wrote, The Spirit himself giveth testimony to our spirit that we are the sons of God, and if sons, heirs also, also heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. St. Peter, in his epistle, We have been begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth. Unquote. So the apostles they don't hesitate to tell us that the very purpose of the incarnation was to confer this sonship upon men. This is why St. Paul said, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law that he might redeem them that were under the law 
that we might receive the adoption of sons, unquote. Now, again, this sonship is not meant to be taken metaphorically, but literally. We are not, uh, of course, we're not the natural sons of God, like the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Word, our Lord Jesus Christ. He possesses the divine nature by natural right. He is the Son of God by nature, and he's equal with the Father because he possesses the same divine nature. But we are truly sons of God by a supernatural adoption. Now, the problem is that when a man and a woman adopt a child in this world, when a man and a woman adopt a child, no matter how loving and generous an act it is, no matter how forceful the laws could be written surrounding it, it remains a legal fiction. The child who is adopted doesn't suddenly have a, a biological relation to the adopted parents. And, and, and suddenly possess all their, their physical qualities and features. No legal document, no judge can affect that change. But it's otherwise with divine adoption. In God's dealing with us, legal fictions have no place. If we are called and are the children of God, it's because there is effected in us a profound transformation whereby our nature becomes endowed with new powers and new endowments, that make us in some mysterious way like to God. And this brings me to... Well, Father, if I could just... Uh, yeah, sure. Maybe... Absolutely. Uh, as you're saying that, I guess I think of it maybe looking at a a way to just make an analogy from a molecular level or, or some such sort of thing. With someone's adopted uh, physically, genetically, they can't become... The uh, the biological children of the people that adopt them, but um, on a spiritual le- level with God, our our souls are actually changed, uh, mm-hmm. as, kind of as an analogy, as if like our genes could be changed to actually become correct God's children. Exactly, exactly. exactly. That there's a real change in our souls, and this is something we'll we'll uh, refer to over and over, and as we keep going. But yes, that's the point uh, that we're not talking metaphorically, we're not talking legally, we're not talking, you know, anything that there's a real rebirth, there's a real, not rebirth, but there's a, a, a birth into a divine life that we are in some mysterious way like to God, that we're actually part of the family, that we're uh, true sons of God, true sons of God. And, um, and I think you'll be shocked at some of the quotes uh, that I'll be reading in, in a moment here. Um, it's quite amazing. Uh, and that's why I, I'm going to be quoting uh, many uh, fathers of the church and, and, and theologians just to show that I'm not making this up. This isn't uh, my opinion. Um, the, the effect of grace in the soul, sanctifying grace in a soul, is so profound and amazing that... Um, and it's so, such a part of Catholic tradition, but yet it's almost completely forgotten. It's almost something that no one talks about anymore, but it was, it was so common to the fathers of the church and theologians and spiritual writers in the past. Um, I could multiply these, these quotes, so you could spend hours and hours, but I took some that are very clear and quite, uh, uh, quite shocking, perhaps. Some of us might be shocked by them, but... Um, this brings me to something St. Peter wrote. St. Peter the Apostle 
something he wrote in his second epistle. Uh, it's a profound line that brings great insight into this whole mystery of sanctifying grace. This is what he wrote. God has given us most great and precious promises that by these you may be made partakers of the divine nature. Listen to that, partakers of the divine nature. Those are, those are big words. And in fact, this, this, it, um, these words uh, end up in uh, the Mass. Uh, each morning uh, at Mass and the prayers which the priest recites when he puts the drops of water into the wine, this is what he says. O God, grant that we may be made partakers of his divinity, who has deigned to share our humanity. Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord. Those are strong words, partakers of the divine nature. And to partake here, obviously, it doesn't mean that, uh, that we, uh, we, we take a part of God's nature. Because God is a spirit. He has no parts. He can't be cut into pieces like a cake and, and parceled out. Uh, again, we're, we're not uh, part of God in the sense of pantheists. Um, we're not part of God. To partake in the divine nature means to share in the nature of God partially and imperfectly. That's something like, here's an analogy, a famous analogy that's used often, something like when iron is put into the fire, it begins to glow red hot and lives with its own heat. And the iron becomes fire, as it were. Now the fire and the iron, they remain distinct and yet so intimate as to be one. And so the, the soul transformed, uh, the soul in grace is transformed not into God or a part of God, but into something so godlike that were we to see it in this life, we would be tempted to worship it, thinking it was God, as St. Catherine of Siena said. A spiritual writer by the name of Father Shaman in the 50s, he explains this. He said, he said quote, before receiving grace, a soul merely images God. But after grace, the soul mirrors him. The mountain pool reflecting the setting sun becomes a miniature sun. The soul in grace becomes so like God that to see it, one would be tempted, as St. Catherine of Siena was, to think it was God. Unquote. And although grace can't be directly felt or seen in this life, it is a profound interior modification of the soul, an interior change uh, in the soul, so wonderful and great that the sanctified soul actually possesses a nature like God's, like God's own nature. You know, um, beings generate beings like themselves. For example, a mouse is born of a mouse. An elephant is born of an elephant. A human is born of a human. And a God is born of God. This is why the word born is used. Born again. We are born of God. Now, the second person, again, I'll explain again. The second person of the Holy Trinity is the only begotten Son by nature. But God also produces finite reproductions, in a sense. A finite reproduction of this generation by grace. That we are the adopted sons of God. We are like the second person in that sense, that we are like God so much in a finite way, but we are miniature sons of God, just like our Lord, our Lord is the infinite uh, son of God. And we are a finite reproduction, but truly sons that we, re we uh, reflect him in such a way um, that 
far more than all creation reflects God. That, that we are the adopted sons of God, but truly part of the family, and that we share in the nature of our Father, we are partakers of the divine nature. We receive a nature, a supernature, similar to our Father in heaven. Father Lean says, when grace inheres in the soul, it raises it to a condition and being which transcends all the limits of nature and natural good. It is not a purely moral entity. It is a real, physical, supernatural quality inhering in the soul, not making the soul simply good, but making it, in a sense, divine, unquote. And now I wanted to go to a, a, theatro- a theological writer, uh, Father George Joyce, uh, S.J., and, and, uh, and uh, quote from his book, The Catholic Doctrine of Grace, The Catholic Doctrine of Grace, which was published in 1950. He has tremendous quotes in reference to this passage of St. Peter, as it has been understood by Catholic tradition. Um, and instead of paraphrasing what he writes, I, I just wanted to quote him at length, um, because again, these truths, they're not my opinion, they're Catholic doctrine, um, and they're forgotten. And I just want to, to on the record, um, read these quotes so we can see how amazing grace is, what it actually means. Father Joyce starts, quote, Startling as the words are, the teaching which we have already considered will have prepared us for them. They signify that the sonship conferred on us through Jesus Christ raises us so far above our creaturely condition that by it we partake in the life which is proper to the three divine persons in virtue of their nature. The passage does not stand altogether alone. When our Lord prays to his Father on behalf of the apostles and all who through their word should believe in him, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. His words can hardly signify less than this. If our union with God is comparable to that which unites the Father and the Son, it can only be a union based on a share in the divine life. The fathers of the church from the earliest times with one consent take the apostles' words in their literal sense. There is no question of any figurative interpretation. They do not hesitate to speak of the deification of man. By grace, they tell us, men become gods. Lower G, by the way. Thus, in the second century, St. Irenaeus writes, We are not made gods from the first, but first men, then gods. His testimony is of peculiar value, for we know that he imbibed his knowledge of Christian truth from St. Polycarp, himself a disciple of the Apostle St. John. We cannot doubt that on a point such as this, he is giving us the apostolic tradition. His yet earlier contemporary, St. Justin Martyr, is no less explicit. The word of God, he writes, makes mortals into immortals, men into gods. When we come to the fourth century, the age of the greatest of the Greek fathers, the doctrine occupies a prominent place in the controversy with the Macedonian heretics, who denied the divinity of the Holy Ghost. St. Athanasius, St. Basil, St. Gregory Nazianzen, in refuting this error, assume that their readers will all admit that we are deified by the grace which the Holy Spirit infuses into our souls. This they regard as the point beyond dispute, as one of those fundamentals which no one who calls himself a Christian dreams of denying, and which may therefore serve as a basis for argument. 
They urge that it is absurd to hold that any save God himself can make men to be gods, and that this alone demonstrates that the Holy Spirit is not a created being, but truly God. Thus, St. Athanasius says, quote, If by the communication of the Holy Spirit we are made partakers of the divine nature, he would be mad, mad, who should say that the Holy Spirit has a created nature and not the nature of God. For it is through him that they, in him, he dwells or deified. But if he deifies, then there can be no doubt that his nature is the nature of God, unquote. And I just wanted to say here, Nicholas, that I found it amazing that this doctrine of partaking of the divine nature and that, and that um, by sanctifying grace, we become uh, creatures so godlike that the fathers of the church simply call us gods, little g, that this truth was such a given back then, such a fundamental truth that they use it to prove the divinity of the Holy Ghost. I think that's amazing. For us, it would be the opposite. That, yeah, we believe the Holy Ghost is God. Now we have to prove this. For them, it was it was it was the opposite. It was just commonplace. Grace was so vitally important to them, and they didn't look upon sanctifying grace as simply as we do today. If you ask most people today, what is sanctifying grace? They would say, well, not being in mortal sin. They would give you a negative uh, side of it, yeah. and not the not the the actual uh, the positive side of it of what it actually is. Right. Well, the interesting thing about those quotes fathers i wasn't perhaps completely shocked to hear them because i have heard quotes like that before but i think that may be because i'm a convert from the novus ordo versus someone mm-hmm. who was raised in tradition and i mean they like to talk about that a lot in the novus ordo i suspect that or not suspect but i think i pretty much know the big difference is the novus ordo following on john paul ii especially would say that humans are in viewed with this godlike quality just by virtue of Natural. being human right. who were born and just uh right. I mean in Redemptor Hominis so he outright says that just by the incarnation of Christ now right. we're all his brothers and this just happened right. because he was on, on earth but versus what you're talking about to to have that grace you have to have mm-hmm. well <laughs> there I am already going straight to the negative yet you, you can't be a mortal sin, right. but you have to have that spiritual right. life in addition that that we're talking about on this this whole series. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, the the thing about modernism is that they naturalize everything. That everything we are talking about uh, is, is is everyone's right. Everyone has this, and that's not true. This is the whole purpose of the incarnation. The whole, whole purpose of the church is to, to communicate grace to men. It's the whole purpose of the Mass and the sacraments, and that's why we obey the, the commandments. That's why we have to avoid mortal sin, so you so you can uh, stay in this uh, state of grace. So, yeah, uh, they naturalize everything. They give it away. Uh, yeah, they dumb it down to, to everyone. It's not the good news. It's just everyone has it. Um, it's, the good news is that it's possible that if you follow our Lord, that we may be made part- uh, uh, worthy of the promises of Christ. But we have to be worthy. We have to avoid sin and and and, and so forth to uh, to enjoy these privileges. Um, I wanted to add also just a quote from Saint John Damascene. First of all, I wanted to say I was surprised that you're not surprised by these that you've heard some of these in the Novus Ordo because I've never heard these except in uh, you know studying from these these authors and all. Um, 
I'm, uh, maybe maybe it is true. Uh, as traditional Catholics, we we tend not to uh, um, talk about these things. Uh, we talk more about the controversial issues and apologetics and uh, his, church history, perhaps, but uh, uh, dogmatic theology and, and its relation to the spiritual life. Um, I don't think uh, I gets overlooked. I think. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I, I would agree, and. Uh... I tend to think it may be a little bit of a reaction to the fact that Novosordo people, as I said, they you do hear this stuff, but from that naturalized perspective. But then it, I guess, then gives people a bad uh, people that are coming from that or aware of that, then they have a bad mm-hmm. opinion of it that's mm-hmm. undeserved because what their bad opinion is of the the way modernists have twisted this stuff rather than what it actually is. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, anything can be abused. Um, the thing is, is that we shouldn't, it shouldn't be the, the pendulum of, uh, effect of swinging to the opposite. Um, the Novus Ordo takes some good things and they abuse them. Um, look at the word, uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, traditional Catholic writers have used the word Holy Spirit, but because of the, the modernists use it so much and so cheaply, uh, we tend to not use it too much as traditional Catholics, that we tend to go to the opposite extreme and think, oh, that's modernist. Or, uh, you know, if they refer to some of these truths, uh, it's not because it's bad, it's just maybe they, they don't focus on other things. Um, let me uh, continue with some of these quotes here just to back up this doctrine. I also wanted to quote uh, something that uh, uh, Father Joyce does not refer to, St. John Damascene, a father and doctor of the Church. He said, Quote, the end in view of which God created us, an end which is the apogee of our elevation above the conditions of our nature, was to deify us by imparting to us a resemblance to himself. He had no other person purpose in our creation than to deify us by bestowing on us a share in the divine light which stands revealed to himself. Unquote. Um, now, I'll just continue quoting Father Joyce uh, a little longer, just a little bit longer, because this doctrine is so... I think it's amazing, um, uh, and I want to make sure uh, I give enough quotes to establish uh, this doctrine. So let's turn to St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, Father Joyce continues, The testimony of the West is no less decisive. St. Augustine appeals to this doctrine to explain the opening words of the 49th Psalm. Quote, the God of gods, the Lord, hath spoken, and hath called the earth from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof. What, he inquires, St. Augustine, is signified by the expression, the God of gods. In the course of his reply, he writes as follows, It is evident that it is men whom he calls gods, not, of course, as being begotten of his nature, but as being deified by his grace. For as he who is just in his own right, and who does not owe his justice to another, can alone justify so he alone can deify who is God in his own right and not by another's gift. He who justifies, he it is who deifies. For by justification he makes men sons of God. He gave them power to be made the sons of God. We have been made sons of God, then we have been made gods. But it is God's grace that affects this by adoption, not his nature by generation. And in another place he says, He descended that we might ascend, and retaining his own divine nature, he partook of our human nature, 
that we, while retaining the nature that is ours, might become partakers of his. And I just wanted to add another uh, line of St. Augustine that Father Joyce does not refer to, but he simply, St. Augustine simply wrote, God became man, that man might become God. It's quite blunt. I usually don't like using that, that phrase without explaining it because it sounds, uh, it's a little bit, um, it doesn't explain enough. But um, continuing with Father Joyce here, just a, a little longer, quote, the church's theologians have been faithful to the patristic tradition. St. Thomas Aquinas proposes the question whether God alone can produce sanctifying grace and replies that since grace is a participation in the divine nature, it follows that none but God can produce grace, for God alone can deify. Elsewhere, he writes, the only begotten Son of God, desiring to make us partakers of his Godhead, assumed our nature, that having become man, he might make men to be gods, unquote. Father Joyce concludes, we do not believe that we shall be held to have multiplied quotations unnecessarily on this point. The doctrine of man's deification is so wonderful that the mind finds it hard to believe it true. Conscious as we are of our baseness, we can scarcely credit that we are to receive, or rather have already received, so amazing a dignity, which he means we received at baptism. We ask ourselves if this is not, after all, only a metaphor. It needs the repeated and emphatic assertions of the great teachers of the Church to persuade us that it is no metaphor, but the literal truth that the sanctifying grace with which we are endowed communicates to us properties which in their essential nature are divine, that through it we are destined to share in the life and the beatitude of the ever-blessed Trinity. Unquote. So, really, uh, a soul in grace um, uh, has... Now, we still have our human nature, but our nature is elevated. There's a supernature. That's why we, a supernatural. Um, and nature is the key word. Nature is the key word that Father Lean says we, we are said to participate in the divine nature. It means that in the divine nature, that in a mysterious manner, that perfection in God, which makes him to be what he is, that it, and, and what is exclusively, uh, um, uh, and which is the root principle of the operation that belongs specifically and exclusively to God, that it becomes ours in a limited way. So in a limited way, we are like to God, basically. And a nature, the word nature is important because a nature tells us not only what a being is, but also what it can do. Grace makes us live and act with a life higher than merely human life. It's like if you took a rock and infused a rational life in that rock. Now that life can think, and now that rock can think. If you infused into an animal rational life, if God infused a rational soul, now that animal can speak and talk. It's 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 above its natural state. It can do things that naturally speaking it couldn't normally do. And like sanctifying grace endows the soul with supernatural powers and virtues and gifts so that we can live and act divinely with the very life of God. The, the soul is now able to uh, elicit acts of supernatural faith and hope and charity. And those are the, what's called the theological virtues, which they have God for their immediate object, that you, you um, love God with the same love that God loves himself. And one of the, the effects of grace is that 
we have these theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. The greatest of these is charity because it is the bond of perfection. It, 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 it um, in a sense, we know that God is present in all creation. We have the omnipresence of God. But what charity does, what grace does, is embrace God. It embraces God and causes him to dwell in the soul in a way that he is not present in all creation. God is present in a rock. He is present in an animal. He's present uh, in the whole universe, but he doesn't dwell there personally. He's present merely as holding it in existence. But when a soul is in the state of grace, now that soul reacts to God and is able to embrace them, as it were, in love and affection. And God is said to dwell in that soul uh, as in a temple. Our Lord said, if any man love me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and will make our abode with him. So charity causes God not only to be present as he is present all in cre of creation, but for God to lovingly dwell in his soul as in a home, as a living temple. The most holy trinity dwells in souls uh, in the state of grace so intimately that God is closer to us than the dye is to the fabric, closer to you than you are to yourself. St. Paul said, know you not that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you? But if any man violate the temple of God, him God shall destroy. For the temple of God is holy as you are. And that whole doctrine of the divine indwelling we'll, we'll talk about in the next episode. Um, now I, I just wanted to talk about one other aspect of sanctifying grace before we close. It is, in a sense, the ultimate reason for grace. That scripture tells us that one of the primary effects of our supernatural adoption as sons of God, by sanctifying grace, is that we are to be heirs of God. Think of that, heirs of God. St. Saint, Saint Paul writes to the Galatians, if a son, an heir also through God. To the Romans, he writes, for whosoever are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again in fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions of sons, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. For the Spirit himself giveth testimony to our spirit that we are the sons of God. And if sons, heirs also, heirs indeed of God, and joint heirs with Christ, yet so if we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified with him. For I reckon that the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to come that shall be revealed in us. For the expectation of the creature awaiteth for the revelation of the sons of God. Unquote. So we have this word heirs of God. And, you know, a son inherits the property and wealth of the father. But what is the property, what is the wealth of our eternal father? What is, what is his property except himself? his glory and his happiness and his joy. It's himself. And so what will be our inheritance? God himself will be our inheritance. The vision and possession of God himself as he sees himself, not in the infinitely perfect way that God sees and enjoys himself, but in, a, in essentially the same way, but in a finite way, a participation in God's own beatific life. 
And notice, this is why Scripture says, enter thou into the joy of your master. That's our Lord said. Notice our Lord said that we enter into the joy of the master, not our own joy. We enter into his joy. So we become heirs to God's own happiness and joy. Grace not only gives us a title to this glory in heaven, it gives us the, the actual ability. Without grace, you cannot enter heaven. You can't live in heaven. That's why a soul uh, in the state of mortal sin, the absence of grace, they cannot go to heaven. It's impossible for them to live there. It's impossible. Disgrace is God's own life. And only uh, God will only let someone into heaven who's like himself by grace. And grace has always been called by theologians, the seed of glory. It is actually uh, heaven in embryo in our soul. It is heaven begun in this life. It is life everlasting. That's why in scripture, our Lord talking about life everlasting often uses a present te- uh, tense that you uh, that hath life everlasting. You already have it. If you are united with me, you have it in embryo. It's It's uh, to use one of the parables, it's a mystical marriage with God, a union so close and perfect and so satisfying that that human marriage is only a faint analogy, a faint created analogy. Um, that's what heaven is, a, a union with God so, so, so close. It's the vision and possession of God. It, it is um, the beatific vision. And this participation in the very life of the Holy Trinity is an eternally enduring experience that will perfectly satisfy all all the nameless yearnings and desires of the restless human heart. And all our seeking for happiness and joy will be ended. And our soul will finally and forever have perfect peace and rest beyond your wildest imaginations. Beyond your wildest imaginations. What, we, what God has in store for us is beyond our imagination. In heaven, we will have God himself as our very own possession to enjoy. We will know him with his knowledge. We will love with his love. We will live with his life. And the infinite abyss of the human soul can only be filled with the infinite God, our supreme good. This is the ultimate reason why we, we need grace in this life, that we want to make it to heaven. We want that supreme good. If we imagine all possible happiness on earth as a drop of water, God is the entire ocean, a bottomless, shoreless ocean of happiness and joy. And to attain this divine wish or vision of God, it's the whole purpose of life. It's the ultimate goal of all our efforts in religion. Um, it's an eternal uh, treasure that which far outweighs and will abundantly compensate us for all the sufferings and sacrifices and heartaches of the short mortal life. But this heavenly life is meant to be begun here on earth by sanctifying grace and the interior life of the soul. It begins here. So the ultimate purpose of life, of our, the trial of our mortal life, is to attain the beatific vision after death. And to do this, as I said, we have to die in the state of grace. Because grace establishes a supernatural friendship between our soul and God, a union of wills through love. Charity is really the the life giver of the soul. And thus, if we break the bond of charity, the soul is emptied of divine life. Much in the same way um, 
an electrical appliance goes dead when unplugged from the power outlet. By mortal sin, we break the bonds of friendship with God, and if we die in that state, that is, die unrepentant, we are lost forever, because death fixes our wills, and we eternally remain either friends of God at death or his enemies. And this is why it is so crucial that we highly value this heavenly treasure of sanctifying grace and renounce all mortal sin and never put ourselves at risk of losing our supernatural adoption as true children of God and all the rights and privileges that this adoption gives us and will give us, most importantly, in heaven. We never risk the loss of eternal salvation, the loss of that supreme good and goal in life, the beatific vision. I just wanted to conclude here that um, if we are to, if we were able to penetrate into the inner sanctuary of the soul, I think we, for, for of, of most people, if we would discover in the hearts of reflective people a deep anxiety and dissatisfaction and unrest, a haunting fear that something of permanent value is missing in their life. But life's true purpose and meaning seems to be slipping past them as the years roll by. Father Lean refers to this in his books. He says that they realize in the depths of their soul that the objects and pursuits of which they have chosen to make their life to consist of cannot last forever. If, there, if only there was a way to take hold of the actions of everyday life and inject into them a little bit of eternity something of everlasting value and meaning than that strange feeling that life is slipping past us as water through a man's fingers would evaporate. I think most of us can feel that way, that we feel that life is slipping past us. What am I, what am I doing? I'm not, okay, I'm just living this rat, rat race, uh, running around like a chicken with head cut off. I have, I'm not, uh, something is missing in my life. Life is almost a continual dying a shadow passing away. But if we want a life that is truly a life, life should be perpetually growing and intensifying as day follows day. This is why our Lord said, our divine Savior himself describes the purpose of his mission. He said, I have come that they may have life and may have it more abundantly. And since he, he wasn't talking to corpses. He didn't mean just human life. His hearers already had that. Christ was referring to something other, a higher life, his life, a divine life. And the life of our Lord, the life that our Lord wishes to bestow on us is not a transient one, not an ephemeral one, but an eternal one. It is the life we are meant to live forever in heaven, begun here and now in time. And, and in God's plan, our short life here on earth is meant to be the preparation, the novitiate for heaven. This is the training ground. And the happiness which God desires that we taste here on earth, he does want us to be happy is only the prelude and foretaste of an eternal happiness hereafter. And most of us are accustomed to think of life on earth and life in heaven as two entirely distinct existences that bear little or no relation to each other. This is something Father Lean brings up. He says um, that for most of us, I think we, we, we look upon the life in heaven and this life as two distinct things that they're just artificially connected like a bar of iron riveted to a bar of gold. That there's no continuity. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. There's, there's, in God's plan, there's always continuity and unity. But we rend asunder what God has joined together. The life of heaven 
is only the full blossoming of the life of sanctifying grace lived here on earth. Sanctifying grace is the seed of eternal glory. And to the degree that we are sanctified by divine grace and charity here on earth, will we in heaven possess and enjoy and love God in that forever. So to the degree that we are in grace, that we have grace in this life, to that degree will we be happy in heaven. But it is essentially the same life. The life we live here, the interior life of the soul, of grace and charity, is essentially the same life in heaven. The only difference is that we don't see God directly. In this life, we see God through faith, obscurely. But it's the same God who dwells in our soul. It's the same life, essentially, as in heaven, if we are in the state of grace. It's the same thing. And so to give this life, our life, meaning is to grow in grace. It is to do our daily work, our daily actions, in order to increase grace in us. It's to do it with a pure intention for the love of God so that we grow in grace. It is to inject in all our actions, whether you're doing the dishes, whether you're sleeping or eating or doing whatever, you do all for the glory of God with a good intention. And you will have an eternal reward for that action. Whatever we do for a supernatural motive, the love of God, we will have an eternal reward for that in heaven. And if we do things out of the love of God, with, with the most intense love that we could we could. Uh, uh, issue forth for that action. We're going to increase grace every time we come to Mass, every time we receive the sacraments. We're going to increase sanctifying grace, and that will reflect in eternity our happiness. But it's essentially the same thing. The interior life of the soul on earth is the vestibule of life in heaven. It's essentially the same life that God has made the center of our thoughts. Heaven is supposed to begin here on earth. And I'll close with a quote from Father Lean. Quote, It is sanctifying grace that transforms the soul of man, makes of him a being newly created, and forges in him a likeness to the Son of the Most High. A study of the nature and properties of the mysterious entity that is capable of such marvelous effects imposes itself if one is to have even a dim idea of the generosity of God to man and the magnificent ambitions that God permits himself to conceive on behalf of his elect. Since habitual grace is the bond that unites us to God, for the whole economy of the Creator's dealings with his rational creatures is directed towards imparting to them these most great and precious promises, since the whole vast organization of religion is but a means to make the treasures of divine grace accessible to men, since the sole end of life on earth is to attain to and develop in sanctifying grace, it is easy to understand what a hazy and bewildered notion of life's meaning man will have unless he has some understanding of the inner life of the soul which is imparted by grace and to the growth of which man's years on earth are meant to contribute. Without an adequate notion of grace, there cannot be an adequate notion of Catholicity. For the Catholic system is not merely a means to right living, much less an ingenious contrivance to help us to evade the unpleasant consequences of wrong living. The church with its system exists primarily for the communication of grace 
to the souls of men. I wanted to repeat one line. Without an adequate notion of grace, there cannot be an adequate notion of Catholicity. Unquote. So, Nicholas, I just wanted to say that we need to understand what sanctifying grace is, to have some notion of it. Um, it's what I've tried to do in this episode. So it, it gives meaning to the whole purpose of life, the purpose of everything we do in our holy Catholic religion. It's to gain grace, to grow in grace, and to die in grace. It's why we live, why we pray, why we uh, ultimately to give glory to God. But God is glorified. The more grace we had, God, God is glorified. It's why we endure the cross. It's why we come to Mass, why we receive the sacraments, why we pray for a happy and holy death. It is why we must defend tradition, why we must know our faith and practice our faith. It's to grow in grace, to live in grace and to die in grace. That's what God's will is for us. God's will is our sanctification in grace. Well, uh, thank you for that, Father. Thank you for another uh, show uh, packed with uh, with information. Uh, even as the host, I think I'm probably going to go back and and listen to this one again uh, to absorb it all, and I encourage our listeners to do that as well. It's one of the beauties of this particular medium is that you can uh, download the uh, episodes and listen to them at your leisure and listen to them over again. So um, thank you, Father, and uh, I would just remind listeners that we're always open and Father's open to your questions and uh, we'll deal with them. We had, I, I think, an excellent beginning to an episode a couple months ago was an answer to a question about the spiritual life, following up on some things we spoke about in uh, the uh, inaugural episode of the show, not the zero episode, but uh, January's first episode. And if you do have questions, you can post them to True Restoration's uh, Twitter account, or you can post it to Facebook, or uh, please feel feel free to email uh, our show or email me at Spiritual life at truerestoration.org. Again, that's all one word, spiritual life at truerestoration.org. And uh, I'll be sure to get any questions that you have into Father's hands. Um, so, uh, again, Father, uh, thank you uh, for joining us and uh, instructing us again in the spiritual life. You're welcome, Nicholas. Thank you for hosting. Now, uh, all of us here at the Restoration Radio Network uh, would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you uh, please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate. Uh, And, uh, of course, to those who have already donated, a heartfelt thank you. Uh, To those of you who are uh, unable to contribute financially, of course, uh, above and beyond material contributions, uh, very most important donation you can make to our work here always is prayer. And please think of offering a mass, rose, or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. And, um, uh, Father, I just wanted to um, also mention briefly that uh, Father Bernard is a Benedictine monk, as we've mentioned before, and uh, he's trying to build up a Benedictine monastery. Uh, as far as I know, this would be the only truly traditional Benedictine monastery, Uh, and uh, he has one postulant right now. There's the possibility of others, but not a lot of space, so uh, so I'd uh, solicit uh, your donations not just 
for our network, but uh, for Father's work as well. And uh, Father, I know uh, the last time we had you on the air, you spoke briefly about you had your eyes on a property. Um, I mm-hmm. think uh, the uh, the diocese put some roadblocks to uh, such a nefarious uh, person as yourself getting their hands on it, but um, right. is that the case? <laughs> well, basically, they were selling a church, and uh, it, was, it would have been perfect, but their stipulation, they had put a covenant on it that any religion could have it, except Catholics, pretty much. Right. So. But, uh, well, the, there's always uh, other possibilities. Uh, yeah, it, so I know Father's not uh, not allowing himself to be uh, completely uh, defeated by that. So, uh, um, again, your prayers uh, are the most important, but also uh, any uh, donations you can make to Father's work, and if you need uh, to get in contact with him for that, aside from questions, uh, again, I, the easiest is just to email uh, at the spiritual life at truerestoration.org. Uh, so, um, if you have any questions or comments, uh, or would like to reproduce our copyrighted work on your channel in some format, we'd love to hear from you as well. And uh, Questions of that nature uh, or of a more general nature can be directed to mail at truerestoration.org. So for the restoration, I'm uh, Nicholas Wansbutter, and uh, we'll be back on the air with uh, The Spiritual Life again next month, third Sunday of the month, so that's the 15th of J- June and uh, at the, uh, the regular time of uh, 4 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. So uh, until then, uh, may God bless you.